Good evening. Albert asked me a few weeks ago if I would preach tonight, so I said that I would. My wife gave birth to our third son about three weeks ago, so uh, I'll try to, I'm a little sleep deprived. She's a lot sleep deprived, but I'll try to hold it together up here. I'm used to speaking to high schoolers, so I've tried to craft my message to non-high schoolers, so I'll try not to break into my, uh, my high school routine up here, but let's pray, and then we'll get started. Heavenly Father, thank you for this opportunity to hear from you. I pray that we would hear from you, that you would speak to us. That you would incline our heart to you and to your word, and not to pride and hard-heartedness. I pray that you would open our eyes to see wonderful things in your word. I pray that you would unite our hearts to fear your name and to be careful to obey you. And I pray that you would satisfy us with your love so that you would be our treasure and so that in all that we do and as we go from here, Lord, that we would seek to honor you. I plead the blood of Christ over everything I say, over everything that we hear, and we ask that your spirit would be moving and working in our hearts for your glory and honor, for our good. In Jesus' name, amen. As I said, I teach high schoolers. This is my 10th year teaching at Redwood Christian High School in San Lorenzo. I teach Bible to 11th and 12th graders. I teach an epistles class to 11th graders, and I have an apologetics and ethics course that I teach to uh, seniors. And it's really been a, a great joy for me to, to teach there, and it's, I've really enjoyed my job, and I love going in, and I love being with the students. And really over the last couple of years, there's, and longer than that, but, but more intensively over the last couple of years, I've been thinking about a, a certain topic, and this year I decided to talk to my students about it a little more intentionally. Uh, and I threw out a question to them, and I'll throw it out to you. I asked them, what would you say is one of the most spiritually significant things you can do every day? What would you say is one of the most spiritually significant things you can do every day? And you can imagine their answers. It's, it's a Christian school, so uh, even if they don't believe it, the answer is going to be, well, Bible study, which is good. Bible study is good. And, or prayer or it's going to be evangelism, or some, some, something like that. Uh, something that seems to be spiritual and something that we should definitely be doing. And then, I, of course, I write these things on my board, and I agree with them, and I say those are, those are great things. But if you notice, the, the title of my sermon tonight is called Two-Thirds of Your Waking Hours. So I let them put their answers up there, and then I say, well, are you going to spend two-thirds of your waking hours studying the Bible? And of course they say, well, no, I'm, I'm not going to. I said, are you going to spend two-thirds of your waking hours uh, in praying in your room or something like that? And they say, no, of course not. But they, they still don't really kind of catch on to what we're, we're after. Because I think the answer will sound strange to us when I say what it is. I say, well, what is, so what is one of the most spiritually significant things we can do? And I try to merge that with this idea of something that you'll be doing for two-thirds of your waking hours. So I ask them, I say, well, what are you doing for two-thirds of your waking hours? And they kind of give me this quizzical look, like, I, I don't, I'm not sure what you're asking me. So then I'll say, well, what are your parents doing for two-thirds of their waking hours? They go, well, they're at their job. I go, oh, exactly. 
So my thesis, my argument, my contention tonight is that one of the most spiritually significant things you can do every day is to do excellent work. That's one of the most spiritually significant things you can do every day, is to do excellent work. I think that sounds kind of strange to us. I think we hear that and we think, well, it's good to do excellent work, or I want to do excellent work, but is that one of the most spiritually significant things I can do every day? I, I think we have various views about work. We may perhaps think that work, and, and by work, I'm primarily talking about your vocation, your job. It, it certainly would be beyond that. I'm not going to exhaust the topic tonight. It certainly could include something and all the stuff that we do that we don't get a paycheck for. But I'm thinking mainly in terms of your vocation or your, the marketplace, where you go. Uh, and I'm sure many of you do uh, when you leave your house and you go out to work. Uh, some of us may think of work as kind of a, a necessary evil. It's just something that we have to do. Uh, it's something that we, you know, we've got to pay bills. We've got to live. And so my work is necessary to that end. Right, you guys have all seen the bumper sticker that says, thank God it's Monday. Wait, you haven't seen that one? Because there isn't one. I mean, maybe somebody should make one. Uh, But thank God it's Monday isn't there because that's not the way we're really thinking. Now, I have seen the bumper sticker that says, I owe, I owe, so off to work I go. Anyone seen that one? It's it's catchy. But... uh, but that kind of, I think, gives you a bit of a flavor as to how we kind of think about it. You know, take this job and shove it, and we have that kind of mentality. Or perhaps we think our work is significant, but not spiritually significant. Uh, I like the song that we, we sang up here earlier. It said, God, am I waking? God, am I working? God, really, God in everything. And that means God in my working, like it says. But we may think to ourselves, well, I have my I have my." Work, my secular work, I go to my, my marketplace, I go to my job, I sit at my desk, or I, I do what I do, but that's not really spiritually significant. And the spiritually significant work is, you know, what I do in terms of, like my students say, Bible study, prayer, evangelism, the stuff that we do in, at church or with the church. And these two are kind of pulled apart, they're kind of uh, split off. And there's other views as well. But I want to suggest to you that this view of things doesn't find support in the scripture. This, this pulling apart of the sacred and the secular and this idea that our work is not, doesn't have inherent value. That the actual doing of our work is somehow not spiritually significant. Uh, it's only a means to an end. Maybe it's a, uh, a place for me to go and try to evangelize my coworkers, and it's kind of a platform for me to verbally share the gospel. And I, I think verbally sharing the gospel is important. But that's not the primary point of you going to work every day, I would contend. One of my favorite authors, Dallas Willard, he's a uh, professor of philosophy at USC. He has thought about these issues, and he says this in his book, The Spirit of the Disciplines. It is as great and as difficult a spiritual calling to run the factories and the mines, the banks and the department stores the schools and government agencies for the kingdom of God as it is to pastor a church or serve as an evangelist. There is truly no division between sacred and secular except what we 
have created. And that is why the division of legitimate roles and functions of human life into the sacred and secular does incalculable damage to our individual lives and the cause of Christ. Holy people must stop going into church work as their natural course of action and take up holy orders in farming, industry, law, education, banking, and journalism with the same zeal previously given to evangelism or to pastoral and missionary work. Do excellent work. Do good work. Be skillful at your work. Be diligent in your work. This is one of the most spiritually significant things we can do every day. And so I I agree with Dallas Willard. Dorothy Sayers, maybe you've heard of Dorothy Sayers. She was uh, a woman who lived in the 19th and 20th century. She was a Christian novelist, also wrote a a book called The Lost Tools of Learning. She saw this split, this kind of devaluation of work in the Christian church, and she had this to say. It's, It's a bit of a lengthy quote, but I think it's worth quoting in full here. She says, In nothing... Has the church so lost her hold on reality as in her failure to understand and respect the secular vocation? She has allowed work and religion, and to her religion is Christianity, she has allowed work and religion to become separate departments and is astonished to find that, as a result, the secular work of the world is turned to purely selfish and destructive ends and that the greater part of the world's intelligent workers have become irreligious, or at least uninterested in religion. But is it astonishing? How can anyone remain interested in a religion which seems to have no concern with nine-tenths of life? I say two-thirds, she says nine-tenths. It's a big number. The church's approach to an intelligent carpenter is usually confined to exhorting him not to be drunk and disorderly in his leisurely hours, and to come to church on Sundays. What the church should be telling him is this, that the very first demand that his religion makes on him is to make good tables. Does that sound odd? You get a carpenter in your church and you say, here is one of the first things that Jesus wants you to do. Make good tables. Make great chairs. Make them really great. Be skilled at it. Do excellent work. That's your spiritual, as Paul says, that's your spiritual act of worship, right? Romans 12, 1, offer your bodies to God as living sacrifices, holy and acceptable. Well, that certainly has to include the work that we do. And since you're going to spend roughly two-thirds of your waking hours doing it, I think it's extra important. Doing excellent work. Now, if I'm right, if doing excellent work is one of the most spiritually significant things you can do every day, if this is really something that God wants from us and that God values, then we should be able to see this truth, we should see this fact running all through uh, the storyline of the Bible. We should see it from creation. We should see it continuing, even though we've fallen into sin. We should see it in the redemptive work that we do and the redemptive work that Christ does by his death and resurrection, and we should see it on into the new heavens and the new earth. And so I I hope to convince you that that is indeed what we see throughout the storyline of the Bible, that God wants us to do excellent work, and this is part and parcel of our our lives. So we need to to start, and I'm going to look at a number of scriptures, and you can follow along with me. Some of them I'll read, some I'll just kind of paraphrase. But let's go back to the beginning. Let's start in Genesis 1, which is 
territory that we're all familiar with. And I think we want to begin by just stating the obvious. God works. God works. He worked in creation, and he's working still. Right? Genesis 1, verse 31. We'll read Genesis 1, 31 to Genesis 2, verse 3. And God saw everything he had made, and behold, it was very good. And there was evening and there was morning the sixth day. Thus the heavens and the earth were finished, and all the host of them, And on the seventh day, God finished his work that he had done. And he rested on the seventh day from all his work that he had done. So God blessed the seventh day and made it holy because on it, God rested from all his work that he had done in creation. So for six days, God was at work. And what a work it was. I mean, when you really think about it, as as author Bob Schultz, I'll recommend a book by Bob Schultz at the end, but Bob Schultz... Uh, wrote this book called Creative for Work, and he says, look, when you look around at the stunning creation, God didn't have to design the intricate wings on moths and butterflies. He could have just made them all gray. Or he didn't have to make frogs' eyes gold in color. He could have just made them all black. And if you just stop, I, I remember reading one guy one time, he said, every day I just try to stop and just look at something, stare at a tree or a bush or a bug or you know, something. And if you just do that, you think to yourself, God did excellent work. God didn't just kind of go, well, you know, it's no problem. I, I think I'll, I'm not going to worry too much about this over here or over there or something. I mean, just, just think about what God's done in creating. I think I, I've heard there's some like tens of thousands, maybe hundreds of thousands of different kinds of beetles why on earth? Unless God just said, I think I want to make that. I think I want to do something excellent. I think I'm going to make hundreds of thousands of different kinds of beetles. And, and 10 million other things too. So God works, and God continues to work in sustaining all of his creation. So we, have, so we begin with that. And then we have God, still in Genesis 1, making the man and the woman. And we have what's often called the cultural mandate. The cultural mandate is what God has asked us to do. What did God create us for? And we know that in verse 27 of Genesis 1, it says God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him male and female. He created them. And then verse 28 is the key. God blessed them, and God said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it. And have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over every living thing that moves on earth. So God makes God's at work, then God creates us and says, I want you to be at work. Right? I want you to fill the earth. I want you to subdue it. I want you to take dominion. That is going to entail doing work and doing excellent work and being kind of co-creators with God and being involved in the the work of creating and working and, and doing things. Okay? So this is not part of the curse, but really to kind of drive the point home in Genesis 2... God is talking about Adam here, and and I I ask my students, I say, when did God first tell us that we need to do work? Was it after the fall into sin, or was it before? They're they're not quite sure, but they're guessing by where I'm going with it, that's probably before. And I say, well, you're right. So look at Genesis 2.15. It says, the Lord God took the man and put him in the Garden of Eden to work it and keep it. 
So before Adam and Eve sin, they're in the garden and they're working it. They're doing work. And I assume they're doing good work, productive work, valuable work. Work that has intrinsic value. It's good in and of itself. The doing of it is spiritually significant. It's not a means to an end. It's not just something you know, they have to do to kind of pass the time. It's something that's good. It's, it's co-creating with God. It's something that he, as dominion, people who have dominion status, who rule over the creation, that's what God wants us to do. Okay, and so, that's, so we see it in creation. Work is good, and God wants us to do good work. Well, what about the fall? Moving on to Genesis 3. We often experience, and I'm sure that you would, would echo this, that work is often toilsome. It's frustrating. It can be dehumanizing. And I, I have friends, and I've talked with friends who go into work every day to just a terrible situation. They dread it. I, I feel very blessed. Like I said, I love my job. It's a great place to work. Uh, no place is perfect, but my work colleagues are Christians. I enjoy working with them. We have a pretty common mission of what we're trying to do. I have a boss who really appreciates me and respects me and tries to help me be better. And I get to talk about the gospel with kids every day, and it's, it's really good. I like it. And I, I think it's... But I've really felt convicted over the last couple of years that I want to work harder, and you still come up with things that are frustrating. Maybe it's dealing with a parent or a particular student. My students are pretty good on the whole, but there's just those things where you can sit down at the end of the day and you go, I'm sorry, that, that I, I feel terrible. I just didn't, it wasn't happening today. Now, why is that? Well, if you look at the, the curse given to the man, Adam and Eve have eaten from the tree that they were not supposed to eat from. And you look at, if you look in verse 17 of chapter 3, Genesis three seventeen, it says, And to Adam he said, Because you have listened to the voice of your wife and have eaten of the tree of which I commanded you, you shall not eat it. Cursed is the ground because of you. In pain you shall eat of it all the days of your life. Thorns and thistles it shall bring forth for you, and you shall eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your face you shall eat bread, till you return to the ground, for out of it you were taken, for you are dust, and to dust you shall return. So, God hasn't said that the work is no longer good. The work is good. But what's happened now is we're under a curse. The ground is cursed. The creation opposes us. So now our work is toilsome. It's difficult. It's frustrating. It can be dehumanizing. It may be boring. It may be something where we just say, I don't, I don't want to do that. And we're afflicted with all these kinds of things. And if you add to that, not only is the ground cursed, but of course... All of humankind at that point is cursed, so there's still rebellion in ourselves and in our co-workers and our bosses and everything that we do. So we have to contend with that. We have to contend with a cursed creation that opposes us, and we have to contend with sinful people among whom we work and ourselves included. And so we can well understand the, uh, what the author of Ecclesiastes was saying. You don't have to turn there, but I'll, I'll read it real quick, and we'll read some other scripture. Well, I guess you can, because we'll be there. Uh, in Ecclesiastes, but the author of Ecclesiastes kind of, he, he was dialed into this idea, this reality. He says in Ecclesiastes 2, 22 and 23, what has a man from all the toil and striving of heart with which he toils beneath the sun for all his days are full of sorrow and his work is a vexation. That sounds like reality, right? 
Even when you have a good job, you say all his days are full of sorrow and his work is a vexation. That's the reality of what the fall has brought, what sin has brought. But that doesn't mean that the toil, that the work that we do is not good. And in fact, uh, the same author of Ecclesiastes says that there's nothing better for man than to eat and to drink and to find enjoyment in his toil and labor under the sun. This too is the gift of God. So we see that God ordains work in the creation. He gives us work to do. He tells us to take dominion. And we are to do it with excellence, with skill, with diligence. Uh, The fall comes, we've sinned against God, and that work remains good and valuable spiritually, but now it's, it's difficult for us. So now God wants to bring redemption. God is now moving us. The fall has happened, and now we're, we're seeing that God wants to bring redemption. So do, what do we see about work in redemption? We see that work is still very good. Work is still something that's very spiritually significant for us. Uh, you don't have to turn there, but just think about this. In Exodus 31, in that part of Exodus, God has told the Israelites, they've come out of Egypt and they're wandering through the desert, And God wants them to build a tabernacle, a place where God's presence will be so that Moses can go in and he can speak face-to-face with God and then speak to the Israelites. And this isn't some little shack or a little kind of booth that he goes into, like a phone booth or something. It's very, those of you who've read Exodus, it's very intricate. It's incredible. It's, It's filled with colored purple and blue and scarlet yarns, and it's got like porpoise skins and animal skins and it's overlaid with gold and silver and bronze and it's it's very detailed it's very specified it's very beautiful i'm sure and in exodus 31 god says i want you to take a couple of men and i'm going to put my my holy spirit on them and i'm going to give them a spirit of craftsmanship and a spirit of skill so that they can build these things for me I don't want just any old Joe coming in and making my tabernacle. I want this thing to be awesome. I want it to be excellent. I want it to be done just right. So God takes, sure, takes pains to say that my Holy Spirit is going to be involved in this process. This is the kind of work that God wants done. And this is kind of echoed. We see this in Proverbs twenty two twenty nine. You can look at that one, Proverbs twenty two twenty nine. Just Just kind of, this is sort of fleshes it out. And I've been meditating on this proverb for a couple of weeks. I've talked on this before with my students, as I said. In, in Proverbs twenty two twenty nine, 29, it says, Do you see a man skilled in his work? He will serve, or he will stand before kings. He will not stand before obscure men. Now, there, there's nothing wrong with serving in obscurity, obviously. Working in obscurity. Most people do. But there's something powerful here. He says, if you see a person skilled at their work, they will stand before kings. And it's got me thinking about one of our teachers down at Redwood. Now, you know, Redwood's a nothing school. Most of you probably never heard of it. It's, it's a very small school. It's just, a, it's just a regular school. It's a small Christian school. And we, we have a music teacher there who you've also never heard of unless you went there. His name's Doug McClure. He was the music teacher for a while, and then he, he left and went to establish an orphanage in India, and he came back, and now he's back. But one thing I do know about him is that he is a man who does excellent work. He plays the cello and the violin, and 
he does it with great skill. So much skill, apparently, that he was invited to play his cello for the Pope in the Vatican. And not only that, but he went up and he got to hug the Pope at the end of the thing. Yeah, that's very dangerous. You know, you could get shot hugging the Pope, I think. I mean, you know, the Pope, you've seen the Pope mobile? I mean, he's like the president. He's higher. He, he rides around in a bulletproof little glass thing called the Pope mobile. You, you can't just hug the Pope. But he did in front of millions of people on, it was all televised. Now, I don't know how this happened, except that I know that Doug McClure, our music teacher, is very skilled at his work. He does excellent work. And as it says here, you stand before kings. You won't stand before obscure men. Or I think of my brother. My brother is a couple years younger than me. He's not even 40 years old yet. And he is the graphics editor for the New York Times. Sometimes I'm amazed at that. We, you know, we shared a room growing up. We goofed around, just kind of wrestled around, jumped on the beds and stuff. And I think, the New York Times, I mean, that's one of the, that's one of the premier papers in the whole world. And he's the head of the whole graphics section. How did he get there? He, he got that job when he was like 36. I know why. He does excellent work. I mean, go to the New York Times, look at their graphics. They're incredible. And he works hard. And I know the kind of work he does because when he was the editor or the graphics editor for the science section, he was nominated for a Pulitzer Prize for the work they did on the Human Genome Project. And then with some group that he, he did some project with when he was the editor, he got invited to the White House and Michelle Obama gave him and his work group some prize. So he got to go meet Michelle Obama. He thought it was nice. I mean, he tends to play that stuff down. But he's, he's, he's incredible. He works, he does excellent work. One more example, I'll give you, some of you here may be familiar with the Center for Bioethics and Culture. We've shown some of their films here. Uh, I do some volunteer work with them. And that organization has become really one of the premier organizations that discusses issues related to cloning and stem cell research and trafficking in, in women's eggs and it's really become a, a first-class operation. And one of the jokes that Jennifer Law is the national director, and again, Jennifer Law, she's kind of a, she just a, she was a nurse and then a housewife. And she said, I think I want to start an organization. Well, she does excellent work. I remember I asked her one time, I said, Jennifer, how, how is it that our, your organization became kind of the, the go-to organization? Why, how is it that you're testifying in front of the European Parliament and you're, you know, you're going here and there and doing all this stuff and people are looking to you? And she said, I, I'm not... I'm not really sure. They, they just started calling me. And, uh, you know, and I, I started talking about these issues. And, and so now I'm the one. They, they call me. But if you look at her stuff, she jokes. If you look at her movies and her materials and their webpage, people think that she has an office. And they think that she's got multiple staff and a multi-million dollar budget. And she doesn't. She works out of her home. And I think she has one paid staff. So she's an example to me. I say, well, here's a woman who's doing excellent work. She's known in foreign countries. She's known around our country for doing excellent work. And I think it's a, an embodiment of Proverbs 22, 29. And by the way, people who say, well, you know, work is a place where you should really just be trying to use that as a platform to share the gospel. I say to them, if you want to be able to share the gospel with people, do excellent work. And then you'll have more opportunities. 
Now, I don't think you should do excellent work just for that. It's not just a platform for that. But, but the people who do excellent work, I think there's an opportunity. There'll be opportunities there to share about the hope that we have and the thing that motivates and drives our, the work that we do. One more from Ecclesiastes says, Ecclesiastes 9.10, I'd just write this over everything. Ecclesiastes 9.10 says, whatever your hand finds to do, do it with your mind. Whatever your hand finds to do, do it with your mind. Which includes your work. Now, do we see this in the New Covenant? Do we see, in the New Testament, where do we, we see this? Uh, turn to the book of Colossians. I'm just kind of taking us through because I... I want to establish that this is something that God has ordained, that God values from beginning to end. It's not sort of a passing notion. We see it in creation, we see it preserved through the fall, and we see it in redemption. Now, here, in Colossians 3, Paul is writing specifically to slaves. Now, if he's, if he's giving this advice to slaves, how much more do we who are not slaves? Verse 22. Slaves, obey in everything those who are your earthly masters, not by way of eye service as people pleasers. In other words, not just when they're watching you, but with sincerity of heart, fearing the Lord. Whatever you do, work heartily as for the Lord and not for men, knowing that from the Lord you will receive the inheritance as your reward. You are serving the Lord Christ. Work heartily as for the Lord. Don't do it just when your boss's eye is on you. Do excellent work. Be skilled at your work. Be diligent in your work. Make it great. Make it good when no one's watching. And in doing that, it has inherent spiritual value. It's good in and of itself. The doing of it is good. It's Christ that you're serving. So we see in in Colossians, Paul saying this same thing. In 2 Thessalonians, I won't go there and read it, but Paul says, one of his, the advice he gives to the Thessalonian church is he says, there's some people in your congregation who aren't working, they're just kind of being idle, they're being busybodies. And Paul gives them a command, he says, anyone who doesn't work shall not eat. And And he says, look, we worked. When we were among you, we worked, and we worked so that you would be able to imitate us. And I think we often think what Paul was doing, you know, Paul made tents and Paul had to work to support himself. And we think, well, that was surely very secondary. And the spiritual stuff was totally primary and everything, it, the other stuff was just a means to an end. But I doubt it. My guess is Paul probably made pretty good tents. He probably did pretty good work in what he did. Because he saw, as that song said, God is in my working. God is in my waking. God's, my, God's in everything. So I'm going to do excellent work for God. Finally, one more, because I I want to connect this to the redemptive work of Christ. When Christ died on the cross, when he rose from the dead, this is central to our faith. There is no faith without it. Jesus has saved us from our sins by his death on the cross and his resurrection from the dead. And how does that relate to work? Uh, In the book of Titus... In chapter 2, Titus 2, 11 through 14. I know I'm, I'm moving you through the scripture here, and that's on purpose. I, I want to just cover the whole storyline here. But in Titus 2, 11 through 14, it says, For the grace of God has appeared, 
bringing salvation for all people, training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in the present age, waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify for himself a people for his own possession who are zealous for good works. And I don't think that good works there is just talking about church good works. Good works like caring for the poor or good works like having a Bible study or good works like a prayer meeting. All those are part of it. But when he says that Christ gave himself for us to purify us, to make us zealous for good works, he can't be saying, well, what you're going to do for two-thirds of your waking hours isn't a part of it. It's got to be central to it. So that's the motivation. That's the engine. When I get up every day and I go to work, I say to myself, Christ has redeemed me. Christ has bought me. He's given me his Holy Spirit. He's raised from the dead. His power is at my disposal. So I'm going to go and I'm going to work like crazy. I'm going to, I'm going to work with all my might. I say that to my, I coach tennis and I say to my tennis team and they're terrible. I mean, they're terrible. Uh, these guys, I have one guy who's played tennis before and the rest of them, it's like the bad news bears of tennis. They're brutal and they don't even really have a great attitude most of the time. I mean, we've lost every match and we probably will lose every match because they're not even close. They're like six love, six one. You know, every match is that's how much, we, you know, if we win three games in a set, that's good. But I tell them, I say, look, when I'm out here with you for two hours, we're not, this is a romper room. We're not going to just jump around and hit some balls around and kind of, I'm not going to kind of roll the balls out. And We're going to play tennis. We're going to work at it. I'm going to try to be a, the best coach. I'm going to try to teach you a few things and we're going to work at it. Because I want to work with all my might out here while I got you for two hours. And then you'll, you go home and we'll do, do something else. But I think that's what God calls us to. And there's value in doing that. And we need to be reminded about that. Now, so God has ordained in creation. God has preserved work through the fall. God gives us commands to work heartily in redemption. But what about the end? What about the new heavens and the new earth? Well, I'll just mention a couple of scriptures here. The new heavens and the new earth are not talked about first at the end of the Bible. They're talked about first in the prophet Isaiah. Isaiah 65. So you have to go, go back to the Old Testament again. But in Isaiah 65, verses 17 through 22, I'll just read you a little bit of this. But the relevant, the relevant part is here. In Isaiah 65, verse 17, God says, For behold, I create new heavens and a new earth, and the former things shall not be remembered or come to mind. Then if you skip down... To verse 21, it says, in this new heavens and new earth, they shall build houses and inhabit them. They shall plant vineyards and eat their fruit. They shall not build and another inhabit. They shall not plant and another eat. For like the days of a tree shall the days of my people be, and my chosen shall long enjoy the work of their hands. Amen. I mean, I don't know what your vision of heaven is, but I certainly don't want to just be floating around on a cloud as some sort of disembodied spirit, and that's it. You know, like I say to my students, I don't think heaven's going to be just one big chapel in the sky. I think there'll be work to do. 
And it'll be good, and we'll want to do it, and it'll be unencumbered by sin. And we will, like it says, we will enjoy, we'll long enjoy the work of our hands. Revelation echoes the same thing in chapter 22, but this is the last scripture I want to give you here. In Revelation 5, John, the apostle John, has this vision of the throne room of God. He sees what's happening. He sees Jesus with this scroll, and this scroll has these seals on it. No one can open the seals. Until we see verse 8 of Revelation 5, it says, And when Jesus, the Lamb, had taken the scroll, the four living creatures and the twenty-four elders fell down before the Lamb, each holding a harp and golden bowls full of incense, which are the prayers of the saints. And they sang a new song, saying, Worthy are you to take the scroll and to open its seals, for you were slain, and by your blood you ransomed people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation. And you have made them a kingdom and priests to our God, and they shall reign on the earth. They shall reign on the earth. Jesus bought us with his blood so that we can reign on the earth. At Dallas Willard again says, all of what we're doing down here is but a training for reigning. It's a training for reigning. And if we're going to be reigning on the earth, I have to assume that there's work involved in that. I think that's a, a valid inference. If we're ruling and reigning with Christ, there's work involved. And that work is good. So from creation to the new heaven and new earth, we see that God values work. He ordains work. He says, do excellent work. It has intrinsic value. It's spiritually significant how we go about our work every day. And if I had time, I would expand that out to include people who aren't, like I said, getting a paycheck. I, I love my wife, and I love her for many reasons, but one of the things I really appreciate about her is she believes this stuff. Most of this stuff is stuff she's bringing to me. When we talk about work or whatever, she's bringing it to me, and she doesn't work outside the house. She's at home. But she works at home, and she makes stuff. She does stuff. She designs stuff. She kind of works at the house and does things and makes it a home that's just it's incredible. And it's work, and she takes pride in it. And she will do something and clean something, get something ready that she knows the next day our two boys are going to come out and destroy. I mean, it's just, I mean, our oldest boy is three and a half, our second one is one and a half, and we have a newborn now. So there's much as a foot at the Duenas household all the time. But my wife really works at this, and I think that she sees value in it, even if it's destroyed the next morning. Uh, just in closing, I think it stands to reason, too, in all that I've said, that if two-thirds of our waking hours or more are devoted to work, you can bet that that's where the spiritual battle is the fiercest. Satan is, just, is not trying to derail you primarily in something that you spend 10 minutes of your day doing. But something you spend 10 hours, oh yeah. He's all over that. And all you have to do is talk with people or just think about your own work situation. I'm sure you can see that. Satan wants to do anything he can to tell us that our work is boring, it's not meaningful, he wants to have our co-workers or boss, you know. Not, I'm not saying everything is always against us. We don't have to go into work saying it's a me against you mentality. Our battle is not against flesh and blood. It's against the spiritual powers and forces of darkness. But you can be sure that where the gospel, the rubber meets the road of the gospel for most people, most of you, is in what you're going to spend two-thirds of your waking hours doing in the marketplace, in the work that you do. And that's where the battle has to be joined. And that's why I think this is so important.
I, I want to, as I said, I want to commend to you a, an excellent little book. It's very short. You can see it's thin. It's got like 40 chapters in it because they're all about like a page and a half or three pages or something like that. And it's called Created for Work, Practical Insights for Young Men by Bob Schultz, who has three daughters. <laughs> Go figure. But um, I, I read it and I thought, well, my, my boys are not young men yet. But even if I had no boys and I had all three daughters, this is a fantastic book. It really, I think, fleshes out what I've been trying to say. And I, like I said, there's lots of questions that come up around this topic. And uh, I have a friend here tonight who's really helped me to think about this over the last nine years. I still feel like I'm just, I'm just beginning to enter into what all this means. But it's fantastic. I'll say that. In the last couple of years, it's really kind of made me think, this is great stuff. Because that's where the rubber meets the road. And I agree with Dallas Willard. The person who's out there in the marketplace is not second fiddle to the person who's in here doing church work. I think we might, we probably think that, but we still somehow, I think, harbor that idea that it's not as valuable. So get this book and read it. It's called Creative for Work by Bob Schultz. I think it's fantastic and very helpful. I'll quote you a poem. This is a, a poem at the end of, or in this book, and uh, I'll end with this poem. It's by uh, M.A. Stoddard. Work while you work, play while you play. That is the way to be cheerful all day. All that you do, do with your might. Things done by halves are never done right. One thing each time, and that done well, is a very good rule, as many can tell. Moments are useless, trifled away. So work while you work and play while you play. Let's pray. Dear God, I thank you for what you teach us from the scripture. I thank you that you have ordained work for us to do. That we are your workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works that you prepared beforehand for us to do. And I pray that we would see that in our lives, whether it's working in the home or working in the marketplace or whatever it may be, but really in our vocations and our jobs, Lord, that it is spiritually significant. One of the most spiritually significant things we can do is to do excellent work, Lord. And I, I pray that you would help us to do that work, to get up out of bed every day to, with a, a passion and a zeal and desire to honor you with our work and to offer it to you and for it to be our worship each day and to see value in the doing of it, even if it's a job that we don't really like right now. I pray that we would find that satisfaction in doing it for you and doing it well because doing it well honors you. So help us, Lord, to keep thinking about that and to keep moving further into your truth in this area that's this crucial area of our lives. In Jesus' name, amen. Let me bless you. And then you can go and enjoy some potluck dinner here if you stick around. May the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, the love of God, and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be yours in full measure. In Jesus' name, amen.